Ever since the first tick-tock of time You brought order to a world undefined Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Our Our teaching team team is made up of men and women who love asking probing questions of each week's scripture portion. To which our community responds with curiosity, courage, and a desire to expand in faith, hope, and love. We follow the Revised Common Lectionary, and we follow the church calendar, because because they they anchor us in something something which can can hold us, no matter what life throws our way. We exist to join God's work of cultivating new beginnings in all of us everywhere cultivating new beginnings in all of us everywhere we exist to join god's work of cultivating new beginnings in all of us everywhere we hope you enjoy this week's teaching we hope you enjoy this week's teaching we hope you enjoy this week's teaching our reading is from first corinthians 1 18 through 31. for the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved it is the power of god For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scholar? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolishness the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of the proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews ask for signs, and Greeks desire wisdom. But we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world things that are not, to abolish things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. In contrast, God is why you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. The word of the Lord. Good morning again, everybody. Sorry as I set my stuff up here. Uh, If you would indulge me personally for just a moment, uh, my folks are here this morning, and this is their first Minnesota winner in 20 years. And yeah, exactly. uh, They came back to this nonsense. So if you could all say a prayer for them that they're patient, uh, because I'd really rather they not move back to Arizona if that's at all possible. So. Yeah, if you could do that for me, I'd appreciate it. Um, Hello, everybody here in the room with us. Thank you for braving the cold. And to those of you who are at home and were smarter than the rest of us, thank you for being here as well. We appreciate you being a part of this community. Uh, My name is Dan Cook, and I'm a teaching pastor here at Genesis. And we are in the season of Epiphany, 
which this is the fourth Sunday, I believe, after Epiphany. Epiphany is a season in, in the liturgical calendar where we uh, talk about Jesus and who he was and what his teachings were when he was here as a, a, on his earthly ministry. We know that the crucifixion and the resurrection are coming, and those are critically important to Christianity, but so was Jesus' life, so was his teaching, so was his ministry while he was here. And this is that time of the year that we focus on that. And often we teach that through the stories of the Gospels. And we, we think about that through the stories that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John uh, provided for us. But there's another way that we also can try to get at what Jesus' teachings were about and how we wrestle with those today. And that's through the wrestling of the early church. And so this is the second week now that we are in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, which is a conversation essentially between Paul and this church at this Roman city of Corinth where they were wrestling with how to follow Jesus. They were thinking about, you know, how do we... How do we uh, take what we've always been and turn it into something that's more kingdom-oriented? And Paul's pulling his hair out to a great degree, trying to get them on board with that message. But that is the kind of wrestling that we still do 2,000 years later today. And so there's value in us examining what was going on with Paul and the church at Corinth. Uh, just by way of review, last week we talked about... Um, we talked about unity, and we talked about the message of the cross. We talked about unity not meaning uniformity of thought and of, uh, and of opinion, but unity as a unity of purpose, right? That we, we are, take our differences, and instead of letting those divide us, instead of letting those become things that we try to dominate each other over, we take our differences and we bring them together in following Jesus and following Christ. We put Christ at the center, and we follow behind him. We also learned that kingdom power, uh, we talked about this last week, kingdom power is found not in dominating over one another. As I just said, that's earthly power. But kingdom power is found in the self-sacrificial message of the cross. So as Paul wrote to this church in Corinth, he was pushing back against this idea of trying to dominate over one another because in the city of Corinth, they had grown up. It was part of the culture. It was, they were steeped in this idea of public status. They were steeped in this idea of improving your own status at maybe at the expense of somebody else's or constantly measuring themselves against one another. And that leads almost inevitably to that kind of domination, earthly power that we were talking about. Paul's pushing back against that and saying, no, that's not the message of the cross. That's not the way of the kingdom. So I left you last week with a challenge. And I asked you uh, to think through who, in your mind, maybe who people are, who's somebody in your life that maybe you want to elevate yourself over. Or who's somebody in your life that maybe you want to separate yourself from because you find that difference and you have trouble reconciling that difference. And then to pray for God to try to lead you into a call to unity, the idea of where, how, what does unity of purpose look like with you and that person. And I'm just curious, maybe you didn't have time to do it, maybe you did. I'm curious, not for any specific information, but if there was any general impressions you all got, if there was anything that maybe surprised you as you thought through that exercise at all. And by, by all means, we'll make this the all play. If you have, have something in that, please feel free to shout it out. And if you don't, that's okay too. I'm just keeping track and we'll dock your grade a little bit. But <laughs> that'd be fine. You may recall that at the end of last week's passage was this verse 18 that starts this week's passage. And the lectionary does that at times. It overlaps. And where there is overlap... That's usually something that's pretty important. And so verse 18 becomes this pivot point from last week's argument to this week's argument. Verse 18 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Foolishness to those who are perishing, 
power, the power of God to those of us who are being saved. So we're shifting from this argument last week where Paul's saying, please don't divide over earthly leaders. Christ is all that matters. And then if you focus on the message of the cross, if you focus on the kingdom power of self-sacrificial love, and you're united in that, the church can accomplish amazing things. That's what Paul's digging at in that paragraph we looked at last week. And now we're shifting to this week where Paul says, basically, instead of trying to prove your status based on what you, who you follow or what you, it is you believe, instead, do whatever you're going to do with humility because that message of the cross that you have received, that idea that the kingdom power comes through self-sacrificial love, that message is nothing that you received because of your own skills or because of your own talents. That message is something you received through the gift of grace of God. And that should inspire humility, as we saw in the Micah passage that John so ably read. That's where Paul's digging at this week. So, what you have to start to remember when we talk about the message of the cross is that the way we think about the cross today is not how they thought about the cross 2,000 years ago. Today, the cross is, I hate to even put it this way, but it's almost a benign symbol. We don't think about it that often, right? You may not have noticed, but I went through and counted as I was setting up this morning. There are over 40 crosses displayed in this room alone. Not to mention the sanctuary, not to mention the rest of the building. There are over 40 in this room alone. I myself am wearing three right now. I have one on a bracelet. I have one on a pendant that you can't see, but trust me, it's there. And I have one tattooed on my right arm. It's all over the place in Christianity. And it's a symbol of love and of God's power and of the unity of the church. That's not what it was in Paul's time. The cross in Paul's time was a symbol of fear. It was a symbol of terror. It was a symbol of oppression. It was a symbol of Rome's crushing power over everywhere that they ruled. Because when you think about it, the crucifixion, it was not a very efficient way of killing criminals, which is not why Rome used it. Rome didn't use it just because they needed a way to kill people. There are far better ways to do that. The reason the cross was used in Rome was not to just kill a criminal, but to send a message to everybody else. You'll recall that Jesus being taken down off the cross shortly after he died, that was the exception to the rule. Bodies were usually left on the cross for days at a time, and you can imagine how gruesome that got. But it was a message to everybody. If you mess with the empire, this is the kind of death you're going to have. This kind of ignominious, grotesque, painful, shameful death. This is what's coming your way. Do not mess with the empire. And even the fact that Jesus was just crucified with two other people was somewhat rare. You can think all the way back to the Spartacus story and how there was an entire road lined with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that were crucified. Rome knew how to send a message and they knew to make it brutal because it got people's attention. That shame, that fear, that oppression, that terror, that was what the cross was about. And now here comes Paul saying that the message of the cross is kingdom power, the message of the cross is self-sacrificial love. What? You'd be forgiven in that time and in that place if you thought Paul was half a lunatic for suggesting that this, this symbol actually means God's love for humanity. Unless, unless you understood the message. Unless you understood what Jesus was doing. Unless you understood why he had to go to the cross. When you get that message, then everything falls into place. God's plan of taking earthly symbols of power and turning them upside down falls into place. 
And it's not just about getting that message, but you have to understand how we get that message. That's what Paul's driving at here today. If we look at verse 20, it says, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scholar? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Really? Wisdom is foolish? Seems contradictory, doesn't it? I talked last week a little bit about how we are designed as Christians to find our identity, to find our value in Christ. And that's very easy for me to stand up here and say. It's a lot more difficult to live out. I recognize that. And I was reminded of that visibly this week as I was going through. If, if you all ever think about those times where you're listening to a sermon and that little gong goes off in the back of your head, that, ooh, that thing that they just said, that was, that, was, that was for me, right? You feel that little bit of conviction? You know what I'm talking about? Okay? Try standing up here and having your own words do that to you. <laughs> It's a trip, I tell you what. But I felt, honestly, very much convicted this week because I think, I think we forget at times as adults how difficult it can be for kids to try and understand their own identity or try and figure out who they are. Because the culture constantly tells you that your value and your identity comes in what you're good at, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's not ultimately your value and your identity in Christ. But finding our gifts from God and how to live into those gifts, that's not a bad thing. But I've also said a bunch of times that the enemy never tempts you with a bad idea. The, the enemy takes a good idea and puts a little twist on it, right? So the enemy would say, if you're trying to figure out you know, what you're good at, maybe look at what you're better at than other people. And just that little twist, just that little trap suddenly has us competing with one another, suddenly has us trying to elevate ourselves over other people to find our very value. When I was a kid, I was obsessed with, well, I was obsessed with a lot of things as a kid. <laughs> Two of the things that I was obsessed with as a kid were sports and reading. So as I'm trying to figure out who I am, I love watching sports and I love talking about sports and I loved trying to play sports. The only things that kept me from being a good athlete were, uh, well, I lacked speed, strength, <laughs> and pretty much any kind of bodily coordination. If I'd had those three things, I'd have been a darn good athlete, I tell you what, but, but I had to learn really early on that being an athlete was not going to be where I found my value and I found my identity, so I turned to reading. So I loved to read. I would read everything I could get my hands on as a kid. And comprehension, that idea of taking in what you read and being able to apply it pretty quickly, understanding it and applying it, that came pretty natural to me. And so I found right, right away that I ended up being pretty good at school because I could read, because I could understand, because I could regurgitate what I had learned. And so that's where I started to lean in and find my value and find my identity, right? You know, I did pretty well on tests. I got pretty good grades in classes. I ended up with a pretty decent GPA. This is where I was finding my, the pats on the back and the kudos, right? The problem with that, the trap with that, is that it almost inevitably lends itself to being competitive and to comparing yourself to other people. Well, sure, I got a good grade on that test, but how'd everybody else do? Sure, I got a good grade in that class, but where was I ranked compared to everybody else? Yeah, my GPA was pretty good, but was I at the top of the class or where was I at? And the trap there is inevitably you're going to run into somebody who's smarter than you. So if my value, if my identity is caught up in being the smartest person in the room and suddenly I'm not, that's a problem. Then you start to feel like, well, do I actually have identity? Do I actually have value? 
because I thought I needed to be the smartest person, but here's this other person who's clearly smarter. My best friend in the world I've known since fourth grade has always been smarter than me, and it's always been annoying. <laughs> but it's something I've struggled with my whole life. As I became an adult and as I, as I came to Christ, and as I learned that I needed to find my value not in you know, being smarter than other people, but in actually being you know, a child of God, reflecting of God's image, that that's where my value is, and that everybody has that value, so we don't need to compete with each other. When I learned that, that was an enormous help, but I still struggle all the time with that little monster, that little voice in the back of the head going, well, that person's smarter than you are, and feeling attacked by that. So when I read Paul, when I see Paul say that God has made the wisdom of the world foolish, and then go on in verse 21, he says that the world did not know God through wisdom, I'm going to be honest with you, I feel a little attacked. I just spent five years learning to know more about God, learning to know more about how to bring people to God, learning know how, how to lead organizations that do the work of God. I spent a lot of time and effort, and now you're telling me that my intelligence, my wisdom, that's not how I get to know God? I'm going to spend a fair amount of years paying for that education. You're telling me that's worthless? What you, Paul, come on, Paul. I don't think that's what Paul's doing. I think Paul is taking us back to this idea of the cross, taking us back to this idea of, the earthly, of earthly power and how that gets turned on its head. If you look at verse 22, where it says that Jews value signs, that's just another word for miracles, and Greeks value wisdom, I think you see Paul pointing directly at Gentile Christians, pointing at me, and saying, no, the God that can take the cross, the symbol of pain and suffering and torture and fear, and can turn it into the very, the very symbol of kingdom power, the very symbol of self-sacrificial love. The God that can do that can take pretty much anything in this world and turn it upside down. So the, the issue becomes that if God were only available, if you could only understand God, if you could only know God through intellectual pursuit, most of the people Jesus ministered to wouldn't have ever gotten to know God, right? Think back to the Beatitudes, right? Those who mourn, the, those who are meek, the hungry, those who are uh, persecuted. These are not exactly the intellectual elite of that time and of that place. And yet Jesus says those are the people that are blessed. Those are the people that understand the message of the cross. Paul points at something very similar. If you look at verse 26, he says, Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Noble birth meaning the people that were most likely to be educated in that time and place. And yet you guys get to understand the message of the cross. It's not about an intellectual exercise. It's something that we get on a heart level. If you think about the people that you love, your spouse, your partner, your children, your parents, any other relative, whoever it is, you don't know that love through them through an intellectual pursuit. You know it on a heart level. You know it in your bones. You know it in a way that we don't know things that you find in a book. Very annoying for somebody like me, but that's the truth. That's the truth, and that's how we understand the message of the cross because it's God's love that we're talking about. It's this self-sacrificial love that Jesus displayed on the cross. That's the message of the cross that kingdom power is found through that kind of self-sacrificial love. We just get that on, our, on a very basic level. The message of the cross honestly is the most inclusive thing in the world if you think about it because it doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter what kind of skills you have. It doesn't matter what kind of gifts God has given you. If your heart is open to it, you can receive the message of the cross. You can understand this idea of Jesus' sacrifice for us and what that means and what that points us towards. We know that God wants everybody to be saved. We see that in 1 Timothy chapter 2. 
God wants everybody to get the message of the cross. That means that God doesn't put any barriers between us and that message. That means God doesn't put any form of means testing between that message and us. That means God doesn't set up a list of prerequisites, of boxes that we have to check off in order to get the message of the cross. If your heart is open to it, you can receive the message of the cross. Some of you may have seen this week, Pope Francis gave an interview to the Associated Press And in it, he was quoted as saying that God loves us as we are, all of us. And praise God, he was talking very specifically about our LGBTQ brothers and sisters, which was a remarkable thing for a Catholic pope to say. Anybody, anybody can get the message of the cross, which is wild when you go back and think about what the cross meant at the time Paul was writing this letter. It's crazy, and we take it for granted today, and we shouldn't. But that's easy to say. That all sounds good. That's you know, good in theory. What happens when it runs into real life, right? What does that mean? What do we do with the fact that we get this message of the cross? What do we do with that? I want to submit to you today that one of the things that we need to do with that message of the cross, with that idea of self-sacrificial love being the power of a kingdom, is challenge our assumptions. Challenge our assumptions about ourselves. Challenge our assumptions about each other. And challenge our assumptions about God. Now, challenging your assumptions doesn't necessarily mean changing your mind. In fact, most of the time you're going to find that as you work through your assumptions and try to understand why it is you think what you think, you have pretty good reasons for it, and you pretty much hang where you're at. And with that being the case, armed with that knowledge, I want to submit we don't need to be afraid of the times that we challenge our assumptions and realize, oops, maybe I need to shift a little bit, because that can be a very scary thing. But if God works by taking the conventions of culture and turning them on their head, if God is someone that can take this symbol of hate and fear and terror and oppression and and turn it into the symbol of God's self-sacrificial love, of Jesus' sacrifice for us, if God can do that, then we should assume that God's doing that all over the place in the world. And when we're looking at assumptions, we need to understand, okay, is this something the culture is telling us? Is this something that an earthly power is telling us? Or is this something that is of God. Because if something makes sense up here but doesn't resonate on a heart level, that's a red flag. That means we need to re-examine what we're thinking and what we're assuming. And that kind of radical reevaluation can scare people. Because people often come to church, people often come to faith looking for certainty. No, tell me the truth. Tell me the thing that I can just rest on and the thing that I can just keep coming back to. And they want a lot of those. But if you're honest with yourself as you're working through Scripture, if you're honest with yourself as you're following Christ, there aren't a lot of those. There is one, and that's the message of the cross. That kingdom power is found through self-sacrificial love. And we can rest on that. We can use that as a foundation. In fact, we can lean into that knowing that we are loved, knowing that we are forgiven as we go through the process of re-examining our assumptions and trying to figure out whether the things that we assume are of earthly power or of kingdom power. Kara mentioned earlier today the tragedy in Memphis. And I've been thinking about this all week. What do you say about something like that? Um, I don't know if you've all watched the video or not. I felt like for actually both of my jobs, I needed to. It's, it's beyond description to watch that. It really, really is. And yet I know, as I stand here in this room, 
There are folks that are going to look at that story, that are going to process that tragedy, and are going to say, yeah, what those officers did was awful, and they should be prosecuted. And why do people have to run from the police? And there are going to be other people in this room that think, I don't care if you run from the police or not. Nobody deserves a beating like that. You can't do that. And I want to submit to you that there's a tension where there's truth in both of those things and that we can hold the truth of both of those things. And standing on the rock that is God's love for us, that is self-sacrificial love, that is the call for unity in the church, it is our job as Christians to sit here and say, what are my assumptions? What am I assuming that's leading me to this conclusion? And how do I think my way through that in light of the message of the cross? The passage from Micah teaches us that justice is crucial, that God asks for us to do justice. But God asks for us to do justice with love and with humility. And if we don't do it with love and we don't do it with humility, justice becomes a search for vengeance, and that's not of God. So how do we reframe, how do we rethink, how do we re-examine our assumptions that we make when we look at this just horrific story and say, where is justice here with love? And remember, when we say with love, Jesus commands us to love our enemies. And as hard as it is to do, Having love for a victim in this situation, we can do that. Having love for the five men that did that to him, that's a whole lot harder. And yet Jesus calls us to love our enemy. We have to do justice with love and with humility, with the humility of knowing that we don't understand everything there is to understand about that situation and the people that were in it. The message of the cross, Genesis, is kingdom power is found through self-sacrificial love. And we have to be able to lean on that and challenge the things that we assume and understand that in this room where there are different opinions, there is also commonality. And that with our differences, with our different backgrounds, with our different perspectives, we can come together and we can do better or we can just go to our polls and stand there and scream at each other and accomplish actually absolutely nothing. I think we can do better. I think we can follow, as difficult as it is, I think we can follow the call of Christ. I think we can follow the call of Christ towards challenging what we assume and trying to find the commonality that leads us forward together. What happened was wrong. It was wrong. And that young man should be alive today. And our different opinions shouldn't divide us. Our different opinions shouldn't, shouldn't lead us to try and dominate one another. You're right, you're wrong. We're better than you. That's not of Christ, that's not of God. When you ask for what's the Christian approach for a situation like this, I can't tell you, well, this is the opinion that is the Christian opinion. Anybody who tries to tell you that, woo, be afraid. They're probably trying to sell you a book. I haven't written a book yet. <laughs> it isn't the opinion. It's the approach. Unity isn't uniformity. Unity is a posture. Unity is a directionality that Christ has laid out before us. Unity is priority, setting your priorities. What's the most important thing? 
The most important thing isn't being right at somebody else's expense. The most important thing is understanding that God loves every single one of us with self-sacrificial love and calls on us to love each other the same way. That's the message of the cross. That's the message we get on a heart level. That's the message we're supposed to feel in our bones. And translating that message into real life, into action, is hard. And we're going to make mistakes. And we're going to screw it up at times. And that's why we need each other. Because when I fail, you can pick me up. When you fail, I can pick you up. And we are forgiven and we are loved by God unto death on a cross. Amen? The message of the cross is there for us. And as much as I hate to have to talk about something like Memphis because it's such a horrible tragedy, it is the example. God doesn't cause evil in this world, I'm convinced of it, but God can use evil for good. And I believe we are called to react to this situation in a different way. Through self-sacrificial love. Thank you, Pam. Through self-sacrificial love, through the message of the cross, we can do better. Amen? Amen. Thank you for listening to the Genesis West podcast. If, if you, you find, find yourself, yourself nearby, nearby on Sunday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. We meet at Elam Church Center in Robbinsdale, Minnesota. If you, if have, you have any, any questions or would like to connect with us, please visit us at www.genesiscov.org.